You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this message with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I trust in the leading of your Holy Spirit, and so I place myself in your care. I am dependent upon you. Help me as I speak your word to speak clearly so that those listening would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Key number one to living in freedom is you must know the truth about your faith. Now, my Christian journey began in 1970. 1970, sorry. It was at the Baptist Church here in Oracle. I was eight years old, and I attended an evening service with my grandparents. And to be honest with you, I can't really remember anything about the sermon. What I remember is we were sitting on the left-hand side of the sanctuary, somewhere around the third or the fourth pew. The service was coming to a close, and we had begun to sing, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And it was on the second course of Just As I Am that suddenly I became aware of the fact that I was a sinner. I was so overwhelmed by the darkness of my situation, I knew that I needed a Savior. So that when the pastor gave the invitation, you know, at eight, I jumped right up and made my way into the center aisle and walked down to the front of the church. My grandparents probably thought I was running out. (laughs) But the pastor led me in a prayer to invite Jesus into my heart. Now, at eight years old, I had no background in theology at that point. It's a given. I had no doctrinal understanding. So how did I know that I had peace with God and that he was living in my heart? It was by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith. And this, not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. He tells us in 2 Corinthians that we live or we walk by faith and not by sight. So what is faith? Well, someone might say, well, brother, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 in the King James Version of the Bible, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And they would be correct. That's exactly what Hebrews 11.1 says. But because this definition is not clearly understood, 
It's left room for distortions to the true meaning of faith. Let's look at some of these distortions. Now, here are two examples of distortions of faith that I have seen taught in the church that are completely false. And I mention them today only because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying when I use the word faith. The first one comes from the faith movement. Now, the faith movement, along with the New Age movement, is derived from religious and metaphysical teachings of the early 19th century called New Thought or Higher Thought. These were relabeled by E.W. Kenyon and made popular in the 1980s through the teachings of some TV preachers. At its core is the belief that a higher power pervades all existence and that individuals can create their own reality through affirmations, meditation, and prayer. It teaches that man is a little God that can create a desired result, whether it be wealth or healing, through positive thought or by speaking it into existence through a mystical power or a measurable force that they call faith. Now, the second distortion of faith is very similar to the first, and it's called the doctrine of positive confession. And it teaches that humans have been endowed with the ability or the power to speak things into existence. For example, by reciting a promise of Scripture to fit your desired result and believing that it will happen somehow generates this power that enables these things to come into fruition. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together with just the right combination of right believing with right speaking. We used to call this the name it and claim it gospel. Others called it the frame it and proclaim it gospel. And then others just kind of ran the whole thing together and said, no, it's the name it, claim it, frame it, proclaim it gospel. Doesn't matter what you call, I can't explain it. Now there's a third distortion of faith that James mentions in his book called Faith Without Works. He writes in chapter 2, verse 14, My brothers, if a man claims to have faith and has no deeds, what good is it? Can such faith save him? He continues in verse 21, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Faith and works go hand in hand. We cannot create faith by doing good works, but our works will always follow our faith. James says that faith without works is useless. So if faith is the basis of our salvation, and it's the means by which we live, what is faith? Let me give you a definition. Faith can be defined like this. It's our belief system. It's what we believe in, and it's where we place our trust. So to walk by faith simply means that we function in daily life on the basis of what we believe. In fact, all of us are already walking by faith. You can't help but walk by faith. Let me give you some examples. 
When you wake up in the morning to brush your teeth because your breath stinks. Now, don't look at me that way. It happens. So you have skunk breath in the morning and you squeeze out the toothpaste on your brush. You trust that what has come out of the tube is toothpaste and not hair gel. When you sit in a chair, you trust that it will support your weight. When you place the key into the ignition switch of your car, and by faith you give it a turn, you trust that your car will start, unless you drive a Yugo. (laughs) Now, as you're driving and you approach an intersection, you notice that you have a green light. You trust that the drivers in the cars traveling perpendicular to you will see that they have a red light. And so you exercise your faith by proceeding through the intersection, fully trusting that the other drivers will stop. You see, your behavior reflects what you believe. Your works will follow your faith. Now, in today's culture, many people find it fashionable to echo the words of a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, and many don't even know who Friedrich Nietzsche is. I didn't, but I knew what he had said. He was a a son of a Lutheran minister that is quoted as saying, There are no eternal facts as there are no absolutes. No eternal facts, no absolutes. Great mustache, by the way. (laughs) But if we continue in this line of thinking, then everything around us becomes relative. So that truth, then, becomes subject to our senses. Can we examine it? Can I see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, hug it? So what may be true to me, based on my experience and my observation, may or may not apply to you, based upon your experience and your observation. We call this kind of truth relative truth. And I find it odd that a philosopher can so absolutely, definitely declare that there are no absolutes. So absolutely. No absolutes. And I would differ with Nietzsche in that I believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth, meaning that something can be always true regardless of condition, whether I believe it or not. God's Word is that standard of absolute truth whereby we must measure everything else against and place our faith upon. Now, There are three concepts to faith that we need to to understand as we apply faith into our life. And the first is that faith depends on its object. Faith placed in an unreliable object will be faulty. In order for faith to be beneficial to us, it needs to be placed on a reliable object. So let's see what Scripture has to say about God's Word. 
John tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was praying for His disciples, and we can read this in John 17. And He says, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. The psalmist declares, All Your words are true. All Your righteous laws are eternal. And the prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the Word of our God stands forever. From these passages of Scripture, we can conclude that God and His Word are one. That God's Word is true. And that it stands firm, it is solid, and it is reliable. And it is eternal. So God and His Word are the only reliable object in which we can place our faith. Concept number two is that the depth of our faith depends on the depth of the knowledge of the object in which we've placed our faith. That's a lot of words just to say that the depth of our faith depends on the knowledge that we have of God. And this isn't just a collection of data or facts so that we can fill our brain with all the facts and truths about God. It speaks of a relationship with God that we can know Him intimately through His Word and by communicating with Him in prayer. And the third concept is that faith is an action word. And this talks talks about the renewing of our mind, meaning that we have an active role that we need to address. We need to actively align our belief system so it matches God's Word. Now, everything we do is essentially a product of what we have chosen to believe. And it takes no more effort to believe that we can live a victorious Christian life than to believe that we cannot. It's our choice. Key number two to living in freedom is we must know the truth about our identity. The perception you have of yourself or the belief that you hold about yourself affects your behavior. Dr. Neil Anderson, in his book, Victory Over the Darkness, uses a story about a teenage boy named Bill to illustrate this point. Now, the first time we see Bill, he's a skinny, pimpled-faced teenage boy that sees himself as nothing more than a skin-wrapped sack of hormones and salivary glands. And he's chasing after a little girl named, uh, we'll call her Little Sweet Susie, who happens to be the head cheerleader. Now, Bill thinks that Susie is the cat's pajamas. He rather fancies her. Or how would kids say it nowadays? He's got the hots for her. (laughs) Thinks she's fine. Wishes they could hook up. Now, Susie, she thinks Bill's a little goofy looking. Doesn't quite meet the standard of athleticism that she's accustomed to hanging around. But she likes the attention, so she strings him along, not quite letting him catch her. Well, one day we see Bill, and he's 
running across the campus after Susie. <laughs> when the track coach happens to see him run by and thinks to himself, this kid is pretty quick. I wonder if I can get him on the track team. Now, just a little side note, this is Neil Anderson's story, but if it was mine, I would have had the coach chasing Susie because she was obviously outrunning Bill. <laughs> but anyways, where was I? <laughs> okay, the track coach sees Bill run by, and so he pursues Bill, who is pursuing Susie, and he finally catches up to Bill as he's sitting under a ramada eating his lunch. And he's putting away two double jumble cheeseburgers, you know, the kind with the bacon and the guacamole and the two all-beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I'm loving it. Bum, 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 bum. With that, he has a large fries, and he has that extra thick chocolatey shake, you know, with the whipped cream. It's almost lunchtime. You guys are probably starving. I'm loving this. Well, the track coach has seen something in Bill that no one else has recognized. And so he approaches Bill, and he convinces him that if he would just change his diet and begin to work out with the team, that he could have a vital position on the track team, and he might even be good enough to make it to state. Well, Bill agrees. And he begins to eat the right kinds of food. And he starts working out with the team. And the first thing they teach him is when you run, you don't have to move your arms so much. And so he gets into a stride. Da, 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 bum, 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 bum. And it's not long until Bill begins to win some races. And as the, the season progresses, Bill's getting better and better. He's put on a few pounds of muscle, and his face is cleared up because he's been eating the right kind of food. And so here he is. He's made it to state. Yay, Bill. And he is running the 440 race, and he's warming up, and he's getting ready. I don't know what track guys do when they warm up. But as he's warming up, he happens to look over, and there's little sweet Susie. And she's checking him out. <laughs> and she's got on her cute little cheerleading outfit, you know, with all the ruffles and the bows. And she's holding in her hands two freshly baked hot apple pies, each one scooped with a slow churn vanilla ice cream. Mmm. And she comes over to the railing, and in her most seductive voice, she says, Oh, Bill, <laughs> if you'll just come away with me, you can have these pies, and you can have me too. <laughs> Bill just shakes his head. He says, Nah, I got a race, I got to run. The team's counting on me. You see, Bill's perception of himself has changed. He no longer sees himself as a skin-wrapped sack of salivary glands and hormones, but he sees himself as a lean, mean running machine with a vital position on the track team. You see, you and I need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. 
For most of my life, I struggled with insecurity. Now, I wasn't a basket case, but I had a poor self-image because I believed the lies that said I had to look a certain way or act a certain way or perform to a certain level in order to gain the acceptance and approval from others. My life was characterized by outbursts of anger, times of depression, and a constant fear of rejection. But it was as I changed my perception so that I took my belief system and lined it up with who God says I am in Christ that I have begun to walk in freedom in this area. Now, I'm not there yet completely. I still work in this area, and the enemy attacks me in this area. But I know that God's word is true, and I align my faith to God's word. You see, all of us have a need to be accepted. And God's word tells us that we are his children. We have been bought with a price and we belong to God. We have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. We have been redeemed and forgiven of all our sins. We are complete in Christ. And all of us have the need to be secure. God's Word tells us that we cannot be separated from God's love. We are innocent of all condemning charges brought against us by Satan. We have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. We have been hidden with Christ in the Father. We are born of God, and the evil one cannot touch us. All of us have the need to be significant. And God's Word tells us that we are a new creation in Christ. We have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly realm. We are God's workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We can approach God with freedom and confidence now, with this, I get a mental picture of a kid running in from school and going right to the refrigerator and opening it up. We have that kind of freedom and confidence with God. We can go to Him and approach Him. There's nothing to hold us back. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When we base our identity on the absolute truth of who God says we are in Christ, then it doesn't matter how the world would try to define us. Or what lies the enemy would hurl at us will be able to stand secure on the solid, eternal truth of God's Word. Amen. Amen. Key number three to living in freedom is you must know the truth about your position. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, after inviting Jesus into my heart and receiving salvation that night in 1970, I lived what I considered to be an average, normal Christian life for the next 25 years. But there were times when my life could be characterized by Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. You see, I want to do what is right. 
but I find that I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No. The evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. So what had begun by grace, I was now trying to live through works. Because my belief was faulty, I thought that the underlying message being taught from Sunday school all the way up through Bible college was for me to read my Bible, say my prayers, and be good. And as a result, my Christian walk turned into a struggle of trying to earn God's approval and gain His favor. And I even tried to keep a list of do's and don'ts because I had placed my belief on a lie that I had to perform to a certain level even to be accepted by God. I remember in school, I would stand on the, the, stand on the edge of the bathtub so that I wouldn't fall asleep when reading my Bible. I would go into the prayer closet and I would fall into a coma. <laughs> and then I would heap condemnation and guilt upon myself and the enemy would dump it right on me the same because I thought I had to perform to this certain level in my Christian walk in order to be loved and accepted by God. You know, my life was like an emotional roller coaster at this point because when I would do good, when I performed well, I had the tendency to be puffed up, you know, like the peacock. Look at me, I'm spiritually proud. That's more like a chicken, wasn't it? <laughs> and when I would fail, I would fall into depression. My life was like an emotional roller coaster. I was up, I was down. If there was a loop-the-loop, I would have been loop-de-looped. It was in 1995 that Ruth and I attended a conference by Neil Anderson called Resolving Personal Conflicts and, Personal and Spiritual Conflicts, and we went at the invitation of Pastor Bob and Shirley. This changed our lives. Now, Neil Anderson, if you're not familiar with him, He's a best-selling author on spiritual freedom. He's written and co-authored many, many books. And he was formerly the chairman of the Practical Theology Department at Talbot School of Theology. He holds two doctorate degrees, one in engineering and one in theology. Now, have you ever heard the expression or maybe you've used the expression, it's not rocket science? You know, we use that when we think something so simple that it should be common knowledge. Well, I find it amusing that God used an aerospace engineer, a rocket scientist, to explain Romans chapter 5 through 7 to me in such a way <laughs> that I got it. The lights came on, and I could apply it to my life. Romans tells us two positions in which we can be identified. And the first position talks about natural man in result to original sin. And we call this position being in Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, for all have sinned. As a result of Adam's sin, we all come into this world with a sinful nature. We are physically alive, 
but we're spiritually dead. We are separated from God. In fact, it says that we are at enmity with God because the sinful nature within us desires what is contrary to God's Spirit, and God's Spirit contrary to the Spirit. So that's called being in Adam, and we'll leave that right there for a moment. The second position identifies those who have, by the grace of God, been redeemed through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We call this position being in Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So what is God's plan for transforming us from being in Adam to being in Christ? We can read in the Gospel of John chapter 3 how a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus one night and he had the same questions. How can a man enter the kingdom of God? What laws does he need to obey? What must he do to earn God's favor? And Jesus told him, he says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. In Adam, we gain physical life, or bios. Our soul is separated from God, and we are enslaved to sin because of the sinful nature within us. In order to receive spiritual life, or zoe, our old sinful nature must die. And we must be born again, as Jesus said, of the Spirit of God to receive spiritual life. The Bible tells us that we had all sinned. We had turned our back on God. Like sheep, we had all gone astray, turned to our own way, and thinking that we can live independent of God, we learned how to survive just trying to make it on our own. But God, in His kindness, has led us to repentance. All that means is that He has turned our direction 180 degrees. So instead of running away from God, now we can run to the cross because God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. We can't earn it. It's by grace, through faith. And salvation isn't something that we add to our life. It is new life that's born in us by the Spirit of God. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new is here. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we who were baptized into Christ were baptized in his death. We were buried with him, and just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can live a new life. We are identified in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Water baptism is a perfect representation of that. Let me show you what happens in the, in the Spirit. Now, for our purposes, we'll say that this is Christ. The Bible is Christ. And this bookmark represents you and me. Scripture tells us that we have been hidden with Christ in the Father. Where are we? We are in Christ. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. Now, when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, where are we? We are in Christ. Romans 6 tells us that our old sinful nature was nailed to the cross with Christ. So when Christ died, we died. That old nature is gone. Jesus was buried. And where were we? We're in Christ. And when he was raised to life, we too have been raised and given new life, born of the Spirit of God. Our old sinful nature is still in the grave. It's dead. And we've been given new life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Our identity is in Christ. Now the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that all powers and authority have been placed under his feet. Where are we? We are in Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Sons and daughters of God. We are in Christ. And it's from this position of being in Christ that we walk in freedom. Key number four. Key number four to living in freedom is you must know the truth about your authority. You see, we have authority over sin because we are no longer slaves to sin because that sinful nature is died. If we are in Christ, we have a new life. We are a new creation, born of God's Spirit, and we are no longer under the law of sin and death. We have authority over our enemy. Now, this doesn't mean that we are in a power struggle. We don't fight like we're boxing the wind. It's simply a truth encounter. Because Jesus Christ has already conquered. Satan is under Jesus' feet, and we submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil, 
And the Bible says he will flee. It's out of our position of being in Christ that we can look at him and say, we don't have a past. I'm a new creation. And you can remind him of his future. We have authority over our behavior. Now in Christ, we're, we have a new nature. We have a new spirit. We have a new identity, a new position. But we still walk around and breathe and move in this physical body, this bios. And we are told not to let sin reign or rule over us. And we have that freedom because our sinful nature is gone. We no longer have to obey and be enslaved to sin. And we are told to renew our mind by the washing of water of the Word. This tells me that we need to take and be aware of our thoughts. You see, everything you do originates with a thought. In order, the way you think becomes the way that you act. So as Pastor James would say, we need to change our stinking thinking. We need to take our thoughts captive. And all that means is being aware of what you're thinking about. What are you looking at? What are you listening to? And you bring that into obedience meaning that you align what you're thinking so that it matches the truth of God's Word. And then we must actively choose to walk in obedience to God. Out of that position of who we are in Christ, what He's done for us, our identity in His death, burial, and resurrection, and we choose to walk in obedience, our behavior will reflect our belief. And this is faith. As Steve comes back to the platform and to lead us in a closing song, I want us to think about how we can apply this message to our lives. Now there's two points that I want us to take away with us. And the first one is that in order to walk in freedom from the lies of the enemy, we need to know the truth. Now, the devil speaks in lie. That's his native language. And he comes at you and he'll try to deceive you, try to get you to believe the lie. He tempts you and then he turns right around and accuses you. That's just the way he is. But we don't have to struggle with him because he's defeated. But we need to know the truth of who we are in Christ. We need to know our position. What are we placing our belief on? Are we believing the lies? Are we trying to match up to what the world is defining us? Or are we seeing ourselves the way that God sees us? We need to know the truth about our authority, our identity, and our faith. The second point is that it's our choice and our responsibility. You can't live my life for me, and I can't live your life for you. Each of us must take our own responsibility and align our belief system to God's Word and walk in that. 
We're not just sinners holding on till Jesus comes, but we're overcomers because Christ overcame. We have freedom to walk in that. Would you bow with me? This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.